Welcome to the Build the Future podcast, where we promote exciting and positive visions of the future and those who are helping build it. Today, we're talking with Jason Green, the CEO and co-founder of Upward Farms. At Upward Farms, they're helping shape the future of food by growing organic, leafy greens, and fish in a complete vertical farming ecosystem. In this conversation, we cover the future of food, the work they're doing at Upward, and how the tide is turning, how business as usual is over, and how we now have an opportunity to step up and build the future that we want to live in. Let's jump right in. I spent the summer in, in LA out in North Hollywood where there is nothing. I didn't have a car and Ubers now are like $100 to get anywhere. And so I was like, this is not great. And I was like, you know, where, where do you go in the world today? If you want to kind of be around other people, if you want there to be happening things, like New York seemed like the only option. So I just kind of tossed myself in a bag, headed out here and I've been loving it. Such a great place. Like the energy here is fantastic. Like everyone talks about it. How do you imagine our cities kind of changing and in the food systems specifically evolving? And like, what might that look like? You know, if we go pretty far out, and then we'll obviously kind of loop back and talk about the specifics of, of what you're doing upward. But I, I'd be curious to kind of hear your take on this facet. My hope is that cities get ever more livable. You know, New York City is the if not it's among if not if not the most expensive in terms of percentage of income spent on housing there are other very expensive cities as well san francisco etc but um you know new york's got real challenges to livability as as do many other cities in the us especially you know fast growing cities and you know that's not the way a lot of like new yorkers want to live in new york but don't necessarily want to spend you know 50% of their paycheck on housing costs or more so my hope is that cities get a lot more livable. Transportation, I think, can improve vastly. You know, if you are now taking the subway now that now that you're in New York, I mean, you're you're in Manhattan. You've got great subway access. All the subways flow through Manhattan. So if you want to go from Brooklyn to Queens, for example, there are very few options to go from Brooklyn to Queens. There's very limited interborough transit. You know, you've got some buses, but otherwise, you know, you probably are relying on a car, whether it's your car or a rideshare. And so I think that that could improve a lot as well. You see that in, in other cities too. You look at like the Bay Area. And if you want to get from the peninsula to the East Bay, you have to go through San Francisco. Yeah. So, you know, I think I think, you know, broadly speaking, I think livability improves. I think transportation improves. Green spaces are so important. When it comes to food, that's a really interesting challenge because food and agriculture are industries that require tremendous scale to make the volume that's required, but also to achieve the costs that make food affordable. So food's a really interesting challenge because, you know, what do you do at maximum intensity of agriculture? It's estimated that an adult requires about one to two acres in terms of how much, how much land each individual eats from at sort of maximum intensive biodiverse agriculture, an individual could live off of about one acre. Now, of course, that's not how, that's not how farming works at large, right? you know, uh, where it's like, you know, biodiverse and, you know, you get your squash here and your, your greens there, but in a theoretical sense, uh, an individual living off the land would require about one to two acres. And so, you know, if you've got 8 million New Yorkers, where are the 8 million acres off of which those individuals will eat. 
that's not to say that that we shouldn't be growing food in cities. We absolutely should, and I think it's a really important part of when you look at um, when you look at you know urban agriculture at large. Cities have always been sources of food. This is something that, like, if you read the Economy of Cities, Jay Jacobs, I believe it's in that book that she talks about how cities have actually historically been the crucible of agriculture innovation, and that it's a relatively recent phenomenon that cities are not surrounded by farmland. I mean, even New York, you go back not even 200 years, and the northern parts of Manhattan were farmland. Queens is farmland. You could still go to the Queens County farm and there's still a reasonably large farm in Queens. You know, now it's really a learning center that you produce food for the community, but it's it's largely a learning center. So I do think that what where we're where we're going because of the intensity, or I should say the density of urban living, that we're never going back to the subsistence style farming of cities of 100 or 200 years ago even. But where I do think we're going, and we're seeing this right now with supply chains globally, that the way that logistics generally, the way that manufacturing generally has become so diffuse is really not resilient. It's very fragile, very prone to disruption. And so where I think we're going, and it certainly relates to our business, is a regional model of manufacturing and food production where you've got enough scale that you can produce at the volume and at the costs that make food accessible, but also at the proximity where you're talking about a less than one day haul versus a week or a month that also keeps food fresh and something that is um, that is still you know local to where it's consumed. This is this interesting trend where we've, you know, we had everything localized, we've expanded almost arguably too far, right? Where there we have salmon that is being farmed in like Alaska and then it's sent over to China to be gutted and like deboned and then sent back to the States. It's such a, such a wasteful process, but we do that with a lot of our produce. A lot of our meat just like bounces around the globe before it gets to its final destination. And so it's interesting to hear that kind of the way you're thinking about it is it's more the regional level, you know, communities have access to scalable food sources, healthy food sources, like right in their own backyard. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, the, the phenomenon that you highlight where the resources exist, especially the natural resources exist to produce what's needed in America. And so you highlighted it with, with salmon and, and, you know, it's not just farm salmon, even for, for wild salmon. You know, you you catch salmon in Alaska, it gets flown, as you know, to processing facilities in China and elsewhere in Asia, and then it gets flown back. Very similar with with lumber. America will mill lumber, ship it to China for additional processing into whatever the finished product is, and then it gets shipped back. You're now seeing those supply chains stall out. And, and you know, it's pretty extraordinary to think that it's somehow cheaper to move all of those materials than just you know make your finished good here. What I think is also changing for industry at large is the combination of energy costs and automation. What you're seeing in China now, which is really interesting, is labor costs are rising in China. That you know you have a you have an exploding middle class at the same time as energy costs globally are coming down considerably and industrial electricity rates in many parts of the US are now actually cheaper than electricity rates in much of China. Oh, interesting. Including in the 
in the major industrial areas of China. And so what that means in an automated world is that you know if your electricity is cheaper in the US and you're able to automate a considerable portion of manufacturing, the incentives to produce stuff far away because labor was cheap no longer make sense. And, you know, and in an automated world, energy costs are the key driver of your cost of goods sold now. So you're seeing that now, for example, with you brought up the, the seafood example, you're seeing recirculating aquaculture, which is part of what we do. So we're, you know, as a vertical farming company, we're a little bit different. We're we're growing our leafy greens in a vertical farm, doing all of that in a USDA certified organic format. One of the key drivers of our ability to be USDA certified organic is having a full ecosystem and an organic source of nutrients, which for us is aquaculture, is farmed fish. So we're raising our fish without added hormones, without mercury. So it's a, it's a truly free from product of the things that, that consumers are wary about with farmed fish. But what you're seeing broadly is recirculating aquaculture, so growing fish on land, as opposed to farmed fish, as you've probably seen it before, in like large pens offshore, or even wild fish, which have some real challenges from a sustainability perspective as well. You know, once you're doing all that on land, what, what you're primarily purchasing is, is feed and electricity to run all your pumps and your climate systems. Same with indoor agriculture for leafy greens. What you're doing is you're trading you know, the weather outdoors and all of the, basically the, the advantages that California has had historically is it's relied on good weather and it's relied on policies that have allowed for very inexpensive labor costs. For example, migrant labor, exemptions for minimum wage, exemptions from overtime pay. And that's, that's not, I think, the way that as a, as a consumer of food, knowing that the reason that my food is cheap is because it's been exempted from fair labor practices, that's deeply concerning. You're seeing that change. California has phased out or is in the process of phasing out those exemptions. You're seeing costs go up. And on top of that, climate change has taken away all of that perfect weather. And you're seeing year after year, these disruptions. You know, The last couple of years, it's been fires and drought, but you've also seen issues with late season, unpredictable rains that have caused things like fungal outbreaks in fields. And so the sort of salad bowls and bread baskets that America has relied on for inexpensive food have lost their the structural advantages that have kept costs low and volumes high. And so we do need we do need a new path forward and I think that to the degree that you want to make high quality food accessible to everyone and that that includes affordability Technology is a key piece of that. And for me, it's very exciting to see across a variety of industries that the technology is available today and that increasingly low-cost renewable energy is enabling the reindustrialization of industries in the US that historically have either relied on other regions because of things like, like weather, like California, or otherwise things like labor costs in China versus in the US, uh, you're now seeing the opportunity to rebuild those industries regionally and locally within the US. And that's very exciting. Did you happen to see Matthew Iglesias' piece on energy abundance that came out the other day? Tell me more. His argument was for far too long, the conversation has been focused on how do we minimize our energy consumption? Like, how do we make appliances more energy efficient? How do we conserve, conserve, conserve? And really the main point that he gets at is, listen, everything we do now, the constraints of energy, our laptops, 
our food systems, our transportation, it all depends on energy. And so if we really want the world to thrive, we need to really focus on how we increase or how we kind of move to a world of energy abundance. And, you know, he talks about nuclear is an option, geothermal is an option, you know, wide, like wider deployment of uh, solar, wind, hydro, natural gas. It's kind of a, a starting point to change the conversation away from, okay, how do we minimize you know, our energy consumption to how do we like maximize it? I think that fits well with what y'all are doing because it seems like, at least when I hear people talk about the, the vertical farming space, the constraint is always, oh, it's too expensive. Because mostly, if my understanding is correct, it's because of energy, it's energy costs, right? Yeah, energy costs is, is a big driver. When you talk about that trade-off in an industrialized world, you make a choice between how much you invest in capital efficient that demands energy to run an automated process or how much you invest operating costs in a manual process, right? Like those are your, those are your trade-offs. And I do think that there is, you know, it's sort of like the ATM analogy. You know, the fear was that when the ATM came in that, you know, you're going to lose all these financial services jobs. The opposite has happened, right? Which, what you've done is you've freed up people to go from, you know, counting and handing out change to instead working in higher wage, higher utility, because you have leverage off of that automation, right? And we've seen that in industry after industry, right? Like automation doesn't make jobs go away. They improve working conditions and they improve wages. I think there's there's a related point to, to Matt Iglesias's. And uh, did you see the, the article in The Atlantic by Derek Thompson? Uh, I think it was titled, America is running out of everything. And Derek Thompson referred to it as the everything shortage, like the global supply chain issues that, that we're seeing. And one of the, one of the later paragraphs uh, in the article talks about an abundance agenda. Yes, yes. I didn't see the, that specific article, but that concept has seemingly like been permeating the zeitgeist, right? Like a couple months ago, everyone was focused on other things, but as climate challenges have ramped up, as these conversations have become a bit more intense and honestly, is like capital has started to flow into these projects. Everyone's like, okay, wait, we need to get on the same page about the sort of future we want to build. And I'm, I'm really stoked to see this like abundance, like narrative kind of come out because that's, what's going to enable all the other technological innovation and advances in science and progress. Ultimately, it's going to lead to prosperity for not just the people who can afford it, but for everybody. And so as we focus on abundance, it's just like the, the future that we end up living in gets freaking awesome. Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, I think so Peter Diamandis, you know, like a decade ago or something, wrote a book called Abundance. And, you know, he, he highlights a bunch of industries and, you know, indoor agriculture and vertical farming is one of them where it gets, it, it gets a quick mention. And it's true, right? Like, what if you removed the constraints? So you say, well, if, if I want everybody to eat fresh food, what do I need? Well, I need farms that can produce fresh food year round, local to those consumers. You know, that's an indoor farm. It's not California. You can make field production substantially more efficient. There are products that store well that perhaps you keep in certain regions. But if the goal is to improve fresh food access to highly perishable products, well, yeah, like you need to make those products more more abundant. You need to make them more available. And I agree, like as we think about energy, efficiency matters, right? Like you've got to keep consumption tied to additional production. But what what we've seen is over the last 200 years since the industrial revolution is that you know output is directly tied to how much energy we're producing yeah it is important that we focus on making sure we're 
being inefficient with the energy. But like right now, it seems like the, the trick is, okay, how can we eke as much out of this as possible? And so we're optimizing on that axis instead of perhaps like other axes where, you know, we could generate better crops, tastier crops, or just not just crops, like anything. It's like, let's make this as efficient as possible instead of let's make this as impactful as possible, then have that, then be able to actually make the, the trade-off. I actually have the the quote from from Diamandis on here. And, and like I want to I want to use actually as a segue to talk about the kind of the composite picture of like the food systems that, that you imagine. Because what he writes is these systems have the potential to produce all the food while simultaneously requiring 80% less land, 90% less water, and 100% fewer pesticides and nearly zero transportation costs. Integrate a few emerging technologies, aquaponics for closed loop protein production, robotic crop harvesting for lower labor use, AI systems attached to biosensors for better environmental regulation, the continued development of biomass energy systems, the betterment and continued integration of waste recycling systems. We end up with a gold standard of sustainable agriculture, an entirely local food production distribution system with no waste, zero environmental impact, and scalable potential to feed the world. How sweet would that be? <laughs> it's compelling. What do you think the stories are that we're telling about food right now that are not correct or that need to be changed? Because when you talk, when Diamandis talks about that, it's hard not to say, hell yeah, let's go. Like, let's make that happen. Or like, what, what is preventing us from, from getting there? I think there are, there are a few different narratives. You know, one is this idea that the food system is broken and it's an overgeneralization. The food system is, is working exactly as it's designed to work, right? It's, if you're a large scale food brand, like the food system is absolutely working. And so, you know, it's a, it's a real question of like broken for who, who's it, who's it serving? And so I do think that that what you're seeing now is uh, consumers are voting with their dollars in really meaningful ways. Yogurt is a great example. So you've seen you've seen this this explosion of the perimeter of the grocery store and a shrinking of the center of the store. So around along the perimeter of the grocery store, you have all your perishables, right? That's where all, all your fridge cases are, and in the middle, you've got your rows and rows of of dry goods. And the perimeter of the store is eating the center of store's lunch. And uh, yogurt is one of those categories that's really exploded over the last 10 years. You look back at 2010, yogurt at large was, was just short of a half billion dollar market. Yogurt today is, is um, eight, nine, $10 billion market, something in that range. Greek yogurt 10 years ago was about a $400 million market, so less than 10% of the overall yogurt market. You look at Greek yogurt today, and it's about $4 billion. Chobani alone is on the order of, you know, somewhere between $1.6, $2 billion brand. So, you know, what you've seen is an explosion of a high-quality product, so Greek yogurt being higher protein, lower sugar, and, you know, a brand like Chobani is now, you know, 20% or so of the entire U.S. yogurt market. And what's also interesting is over those that 10-year period, you saw Yoplait, who was the number one brand 10 years ago, and Yoplait known for its, you know, sort of like these fruit on the bottom, high sugar, low fat products to then Chobani, which is this, you know, really, really thick and rich, high protein, low sugar product. Chobani is now the number one yogurt brand in the U.S. What's also fascinating is from a price perspective, Chobani is still twice the price of Yoplait. So you've now got the largest yogurt brand in the U.S. that, you know, on the retail shelf costs twice what 
what, 10 years ago was the number one brand in the US. And you're seeing that on a category by category basis in like disruptive consumer packaged goods. You look at whether it's, you know, Beyond Meat or, or Oatly relative to ground beef or conventional fluid dairy. And they're also about 1.7 times the price on a, on a either per weight or, or per volume basis. And so this is really interesting phenomena where whether it's Chobani, who's the largest or otherwise, like these really fast growing brands, consumers are saying, I will vote with my dollar. I will pay more for a product that is truly serving me. To make that accessible for all, I think you do really need to think about costs and pricing. And you know, my dream for an abundant future is that you know, the highest quality products are also the most affordable and most accessible. I think you know, we're, we're on the path there. And you're seeing that, you know, like with, with yogurt, where a substantially higher quality product is the largest brand, but it's still retaining its premium. But, you know, there is this real question of who is food serving when you've got products that are very cheap, but made with artificial flavors that are based in, uh, you know, that are, that are petroleum products. Um, you know, who, who are those products really serving? You know, are they serving the consumers, even if they're, you know, they're, they're cheap, but they're cheap in more than one way, right? They're cheap in more than just price. They're cheap in nutrition. They're cheap in how they treat the environment. And, and what we want ultimately is, is a more abundant food future that serves all of the stakeholders. Yeah, I, actually, I've never heard anyone frame the cheapness of food, not just in the price or quality, but in the supply, like on the production side. Do you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah. When I think about the value of food, the value of any product, there is the value that I offer as the consumer. So, you know, here's my dollar. That's the value I'm offering. And then there's throughout that that whole supply chain, there's the value that's paid. There's the value that's paid for the package that it comes in. There's the value that's paid for the work that went into producing it. There's the value of the ingredients. And all. then there's all of the value that isn't assessed, all of the externalities, you know, what are the alternatives on, you know, if you were to buy, if you're buying, you know, a, a grass-fed yogurt versus a, uh, a conventionally farmed uh, yogurt or the milk from that, you know, what are, what are the externalities worth? And so, you know, my, my perspective is as people have sort of woken up to what's in, what's in their food and what it really costs and who it really costs, including themselves, uh, and I think a lot of a lot of individuals are dissatisfied with the outcomes for their families, for their health. the The sort of fully baked cost and the fully baked baked value is becoming more and more apparent. And now there is an effort, um, whether it's you know by producers and brands or by uh, by individual consumers, to create more value create more value within the supply chain, create more value for themselves and their families. What do you think is driving a lot of the, this change in consumer behavior? Because this, this only seems to be, seems to have been a trend of the last five, 10 years, or like even now, right? You're on the, the frontier of the space. I, I'm trying to, you know, get, paint a composite picture of like what's being worked on right now. It seems like just over the last, you know, two to four years, this entire like sustainable, scalable, healthy food systems stuff has started to take off. What's changed? Like what's... It's not just food. Right. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's food, it's politics. We are living through times of great change. And there are experts who are far more knowledgeable 
than I am on what's going on in people's in people's minds and hearts. But when you look at, for example, Edelman does these annual trust studies, mm-hmm. and um, what they've been showing for a couple years now is trust in institutions is at the absolute lowest levels. And you're seeing that now with um, individuals' response to vaccines, for example, right? Where folks are saying, you know, I trust myself and my instincts. I don't want to step in in a pile of doo-doo, and I'm not going to make any other comments about about that. But you're seeing these, these, like, I don't trust somebody. I don't trust somebody else, and I especially don't trust entrenched institutions, that has affected individuals' relationships with governments, for sure. And it's also absolutely affected individuals' relationships with brands, you know, brands or institutions too. And, you know, companies have actually, at least the last time I looked at that data, companies have actually fared better than than governments in terms of consumer trust. You do see we are right now uh, living through like the golden age of brand creation. And it's easier than ever for consumers to find brands that share their values. Um, and that is to say that, you know, that brands are clear on what their values are. What I do think that that you're seeing is with the with the focus on, on healthy, sustainable, simple foods is that that simplicity, that the more that that the origin of food is obscured and individuals need to say, oh, I trust brand X, but you look at the back of the label and there's a bunch of ingredients you don't recognize. The origin is someplace entirely foreign or unknown. There's a tremendous amount of mistrust. You look at the back of food product and it's simple ingredients, or you don't even need to look at the the back of the package because you can identify all of those whole foods that are there and you know where it's from. You know, in a time when individuals are more mistrustful of institutions than ever, the simpler and more obvious you make the product, the better because individuals have the ability to assess for themselves whether this is something that they want, whether it's aligned with their values. So I think what you're seeing in food is exactly the same as you're seeing in you know culture broadly, which is that individuals are mistrustful of individuals who are saying, I know what's best for you but obscuring the information that individuals need to make the best choice for themselves. There's this protein powder that I found. It's called Naked. It's literally like one or two ingredients. Like this is all that is in here. And in a world where everything else is full of like additives and xanthan gum and all this other stuff, regardless of like- dioxide. Right. It's like, what is this? What am I putting into my body? And and the conversation has changed. It's like, oh no, like, why are we so unwell? Why do we have like- health challenges where people like not feeling good it's like, oh all this stuff we've been consuming all this food that we thought was good for us that's pumped full of yeah sugar or fats or artificial whatever has been making us very very ill and so it's cool to see kind of the tides tides turning yeah to your point consumers be able to vote with their dollar around what things they want to support and it, and i think i don't know maybe you're seeing this but in kind of like brand positioning, seems like the stronger you can be about kind of the values that your organization represents, the better you fare in the market because you attract the people who are like, yes, I want my food to be grown sustainably. I don't want it to have any pesticides. I want it to, you know, be advancing this sort of future. Um, 
I mean, is that how you think about kind of the the positioning it upwards? Like, hey, we're, we're going to be very bold about how we position ourselves in the market and try and find consumers who are like who believe in the mission, want to support you know the advancement of this space early on, and then grow with y'all. I think our goal is to be to be really clear about what we do. I think the the why we do it is is absolutely important. But I think if anything, where consumers are saying, "Very nice, very nice," you're 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 telling me, you know, why why you do what you do. But let's be really clear about what you do. Let's be very clear about what is, so I can make a decision for myself whether you're making good. You know, I think our desire is to be really transparent, to be really authentic. We do differentiate in our product by, for example, being USDA certified organic. We do think that that's an important distinction that. You know, you can say that it's a it's a clean food. There are objective measures of uh, whether or not something's produced at a at a certain ecological or quality standard. We do open ourselves up to third party oversight around food safety, and so you know we know that, for example, leafy greens are today the most dangerous food in America. They cause between one and four, one and five cases of foodborne illness, and so you know we want to be really clear about about safety and we're a wash and ready tea product. I want to be really clear about being a grower that focuses on whole ecosystems, even when we're doing it indoors, which you know, there's a whole conversation that you and I could have about where this marriage is between, between nature and nurture. And I think, you know, to our earlier conversation, I think there are these two silos of you grow stuff indoors or you grow stuff outdoors uh, and it's quote unquote natural. And our view is there's actually this marriage where indoor growing can learn a lot from what's happening in nature and on the broad acre. And at the same time, outdoor growing can learn a lot from some of the things that I think we're, we're uniquely focused on within controlled environment agriculture, especially the relationship between plants, animals, and microbes and all of the power that's in the microbiome. That seems to be like another one of the narratives. It's like it's an either or versus what is the composite of these things look like, right? Yeah, the, the world is far more nuanced than I think often the arguments suggest were allowed. Right. One of the things I want to make sure we, we touch on is like the composite picture of the food space. So not just kind of like agriculture, but like we have kind of these higher end brands that are focused on transparency and high quality ingredients and, you know, high quality, you know, supply chains and taking care of the people who are manufacturing their products, et cetera. But how do you think the, the whole entire landscape of like how we eat is shifting and, and what might that look like, you know, 15, 20 years down the road, just to tee this up. We've got like the regenerative farming, you've got the plant-based meat alternatives, you have the cellular meat, you have the vertical farming, you have the outdoor farm, like agriculture. Like how do you imagine these things kind of blending together and, and creating kind of the composite picture of how we feed ourselves in the future? I think one of the most important changes in terms of how we feed ourselves is the focus on freshness. When we talk about the perimeter of the grocery store and all the all the perishables, that's a huge change. If you looked at a grocery store 20 years ago versus if you look at a grocery store now, the focus on fresh or otherwise perishable products is much, much higher. That does demand huge changes in the supply chain. A processing strawberry or a processing tomato is a different crop than a fresh. And the, the supply chain is different. The packaging is different. There are these natural tensions between 
packaging that preserves shelf life and reducing plastic, for example. And so there are these trade-offs that need to be managed. But I do think in terms of where the food system is headed at large is the ability to make good on the desires uh, of consumers and to manage those externalities in a better and better way. And that, that I think, you know, what's happening in food broadly, where you have authentic, high quality, nutritious brands with ingredient lists that you can read and understand intuitively that, you know, that your child can read and understand, you know, that's, that, that makes me very excited. And the, the engagement in the consumer wanting to make decisions for themselves, uh, I think, is as a producer uh, of a product that is, you know, really high integrity, you know, a really simple product, you know, that's very promising to me. And, um, you know, the, the alignment between, you know, what, what we're producing and, and individuals desire for that product. I think, you know, pulling that back more broadly to, you know, what excites me about the future is that, I don't know that the concept of impossible really exists anymore. You mentioned it in sort of the abundance concept. And, you know, what's what's exciting is we have really all of the scientific and technical tools to solve the problems that present themselves. And I think the challenges really are, one, problem identification, and two, the will. And this is something that you had sent me, and it was an article that that I enjoyed reading when it was originally published. Mark Andreessen's blog post on uh, "It's Time to Build," right? And you know, one of the concepts that that he highlights and that I totally agree with is just this: that that it comes down to will. What do we want to do? What do we want to allocate our mind share, uh, our capital, our efforts to? Ultimately, that's a choice. But you know, really, it comes down to problem identification and you know, movement to action that really are the only constraints because we, we have the tools to solve the problems. And if we don't have the tools, we have the tools to make the tools to solve those problems, whether whether they're, you know, computational and analytical or, you know, even in the natural world, like we are living through the golden age of biology and biotechnology right now. And, you know, you're seeing, you know, to at the risk of going back to vaccines, right? You're, uh, the vaccines that the world is benefiting from today were, you know, in, in many cases, it was days from when SARS-CoV-2 was sequenced to when the first, the first vaccine was produced, you know, was literally a matter of days. I mean, that's, that is extraordinary. It took a year to go through regulatory approvals and manufacturing and all of that, but days to solve the problem. It's absurd that we live in like this sort of world that we live in today. Like there's so much crazy stuff happening, like in the mRNA vaccine, just like one, one example. Um, but it's, it's cool to see kind of all these things and kind of their exponential curves and, and where we go from here. As long as we keep building and maintain this like spirit of possibility and like make sure people preserve their agency, like we'll end up in like an incredible spot. Yeah, I think there's another very well-renowned venture capital investor, Albert Wenger at Union Square Ventures, who has been writing about the world after capital for a long time, and it, it also aligns with this this abundance agenda. I mean, you see it in you see it with, with the money supply over the past couple of years. Like you look at you know the money supply and you know this exponential production of capital. I think we do we do live in a time when you know we can choose 
what we want to allocate resources to. We can invent those resources and produce value, or we can invent resources and maintain the status quo. That's our choice. I think it's it's up to us who are you know wanting the, wanting the frontier to be preserved and to be different than the status quo to keep fighting for it. Because otherwise, the entrenched interests will just keep their pockets high and keep keep doing what they've been doing. And so, if we get any pressure we can add on on those systems, the the faster we all move. Yeah, I think the reality is business as usual is over. Right, like you can get out over your skis for only so long, and you can keep saying everything is fine, but you look at what's happening in supply chains globally right now and you know shipping costs are 10x and if you want to build something you know you can't find contractors because we haven't we we just haven't over the last several decades like done the work to you know as a country we have effectively entirely divested ourselves of vocational work you know divested in, of entire sectors of manufacturing implemented regulations without thinking through the implications, like you look at the electronic logging, really important to create fair labor conditions for for truckers and safety for those on the road. At the same time, you know, regulation goes into effect, says, you know, you can drive for eight hours, no effort to make sure that there are enough trucks and enough drivers to move the goods when, when individual drivers can only drive for eight hours at a stretch. And so, you know, we're in the messy middle right now where, you know, the train cars are, are being pulled in a different direction and they're clanking against each other. But, you know, I have, I have a tremendous amount of optimism, especially for entrepreneurs to solve these problems in sustainable ways. And, you know, from a market's perspective, from a commercial perspective, like sustainability is about having profitable businesses. And so to, to the degree that, that the way that a lot of these industries have existed are now experiencing significant challenges in supply chain, in inflationary costs, I think creates an even bigger window for disruptive businesses uh, who are saying, you know, this is the way, you know, that now you're now you're actually seeing the effects borne out of, of businesses that I think had and industries at large that had built models that, you know, just, just weren't economically sustainable, but, you know, we're sort of on life support for a long time. Jason, I could keep riffing with you on this for, for a long, long time. I want to be cognizant of, of time and respectful. So we don't kind of run over where can people find you any calls to action? How can they support upward? Any, any plugs what you got? Yeah, shamelessly. Uh, so upward farms, uh, leafy greens, you can find our uh, USDA certified organic, washed and ready to eat salads. Um, we have some beautiful microgreen mixes that are available in New York City Whole Foods stores, um, expanding regionally as well. And you can follow us on social, very active on Instagram in particular at Eat Upward Farms or uh, on the web at www.eatupwardfarms.com. Amazing. Cool. Jason, this is a blast. Thanks so much for coming on. Excited to see where y'all go from here. Thanks, Cam. Appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Build the Future podcast. If you want to support the show, please share favorite episode with a friend. If you want to get updates on the events we're hosting, new podcast episodes, and follow along as we build the new World's Fair, you can follow me on Twitter at C-A-M-W-I-E-S-E. Until next time, go build.